Hello, and welcome to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. Each year, the prestigious Beverly Alt Scholarship provides senior fellows at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre in Sydney an opportunity to enrich their educational and career training activities. This fellowship honours the life of Beverly Alt and the compassionate care she received at the Kinghorn Cancer Centre. As such, our very own Dr Josh Hurwitz abandoned me to go gallivanting in the United States of America. He was able to attend the San Antonio Breast Cancer Symposium in Texas, as well as engage with some of the brightest minds in cancer care and research at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. Meanwhile, I was left to freeze in one of the coldest Australian summers on records. No, I'm not bitter. Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, supported by the Kinghorn Cancer Centre and the Beverly Alt Scholarship, is incredibly honoured to present a series of interviews with specialists who have influenced the course of medical oncology on both a global and personal scale, providing the promise of innovative, personalised medicine. In this episode, Josh interviews Dr Robert Mayer, Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School, former Director of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute's Oncology Fellowship Program for 36 years, and an expert in gastrointestinal cancer. He founded the Centre for Gastrointestinal Oncology at Dana-Farber and has previously chaired the Gastrointestinal Cancer Committee of the Cancer and Leukaemia Group B. He has also been associate editor for both the New England Journal of Medicine and the Journal of Clinical Oncology and is a former ASCO president. He was the recipient of ASCO's Distinguished Achievement Award in 2019 and, as Josh likes to remind me, remains a living legend. Bob, thanks so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for visiting. Um, it's lovely to be here. So one of the things with this podcast that we love to do is to talk about senior clinicians, their stories, their history. And I like to go back to really your formative years. What what led to you going into medicine and, I guess, ultimately ending up in, college, in oncology? So my father was from Germany, And he came to the United States in 1939. He was a physician. He liked to remind me that his physics professor in Munich was Röntgen, who discovered the X-ray. I was very impressed by that, of course. Um, But it was always in the back of my mind that I would be a physician. Um, The only thing I think that was in competition with that was I like classical music, and I suppose if I could have been a music critic, if I were good enough, I would have uh, thought about it. But um, medicine has always been the pathway, really, that I wanted to be. I was impressed with my father that um, the respect uh, that patients extended to him I was impressed that he um, was helpful to them, not so much alone with medications or with treatments, but with empathy, with listening, with being a counselor, with being a guide. Um, And those were uh, role model uh, qualities that uh, I hope that I have uh, inherited from him. And so you went on your physician pathway, and this is going back a number of years, but you could have chosen 
any specialty. You know, it could have been you know, a high flying surgeon or a cardiologist, and be the the dawning of you know cardiac transplants with thoracic oncology. Why is it that you went into medical oncology, which for all intents and purposes was in its infancy days? So I was in my third year uh, as a medical student at Harvard Medical School. I was sort of sleepwalking for two years. I had no idea what I was really going to do. I sometimes thought I was going through the motions. I wondered why I was there. And in my third year, I was on a rotation in pediatrics. And there was a rather gruff attending physician. And he uh, challenged me and others to um, toe the line um, and uh, take an active interest in what was happening. And shortly thereafter, I was admitted a little boy from the inner city who had lead poisoning. Um, he um, had pica, he ate the paint, and um, some of the residents had overheard the conversation, the challenge that had been given. Uh, they thought that the attending physician was being a little bit overly brusque, so they tutored me for 24 hours. And the next day, when we had rounds, I knew far more about lead poisoning, chelation therapy, the neurologic toxicity, the hematologic effects than this attending. Uh, the attending and I turned out to become close friends. <laughs> um, he was a pediatric hematologist. He took me under his wing. Um, and I started spending a great deal of time with his group at Children's Hospital. Um, when I completed medical school, he summoned me to his home. I was concerned that I must have made some grave error to have been summoned in such an abrupt way. Uh, but he uh, pushed in my hand a packet of application forms and they were application forms to be at the National Institutes of Health. And as he said to me at that time, you got to remember uh, at a time that there was a military draft and being at the NIH counted for being in the military because it was part of the public health service, that the worst job in Bethesda where the NIH was located was better than the best job in Saigon. <laughs> So um, I um, said, thank you, sir, but I, I really have no uh, experience. And oh, don't worry about it. Just fill out the forms. So I filled out the forms and gave them back to him a day later. And to my surprise, uh, a couple of weeks after that, I was invited for 11 or 12 interviews at the NIH. So I went to Bethesda and interviewed. Um, sort of forgot about it, um, went uh, back to New York where I had grown up and was a, on my first day of residency in internal medicine. And there was an overhead page for me to, to call in to the telephone operator. There were no cell phones then, there were barely beepers. Um, and I did and it was the NIH offering me a position. 
So I spent two years as an internal medicine resident and then went to Bethesda and found myself being assigned to the pediatric leukemia branch. And for one year, I did nothing other than treat a cohort of children with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. This was at a time when combination chemotherapy was a brand new idea, when there were ethical issues that had been raised about uh, combining um, uh, cytotoxic drugs, even though combining antibiotics and micro um, in, in infectious disease had been carried out for quite some time. Um, but I was taken by the combination of the science that was evolving and also the humanism, um, the warmth, the excitement of being able to do something positive and to help families, parents, and um, it was a wonderfully growth year for me. I learned so much and matured as a clinician and also uh, was bitten by a bug in science. So I, um, when I finished that year, I went into a basic science laboratory, uh, which um, was exploring uh, at the time that tumor viruses were being uh, examined for the first time, whether leukemia was um, due to a human tumor virus. Uh, turns out that was not the case. Um, I learned a lot about laboratory life. I learned that that was not what I wanted to do. And I was once again sort of uh, sleepwalking, wondering what I would do. Um, I um, had um, thought that I might take a fellowship in uh, classical um, non-malignant hematology. Um, I was had written four appointments and um, interviews in uh, Chicago, St. Louis, Philadelphia, Stanford, different Washington. Um, and then that same pediatric hematologist who had started all of this when I was a medical student calls me up and he says, I'm going to be at a meeting in where I was, Washington, Bethesda, uh, a week from Tuesday, and I want to meet with you. So I go there again, I'm wondering what, what did I do to deserve this? And he tells me that um, the founder of um, a um, pediatric cancer program in Boston, Sidney Farber, who had been one of the pioneers, if not the pioneer, in the use of cytotoxic chemotherapy in children with leukemia, uh, was uh, retiring and stepping down and leading that. And they had just recruited at Harvard uh, Emil Fry, Tom Fry, who was a pioneer of combination chemotherapy, had been at the NIH and was now at MD Anderson. And he wanted me to come to Boston and meet with Dr. Fry and um, think about uh, returning to Boston on the ground floor of a brand new multidisciplinary uh, cancer center. They're, they didn't exist very frequently in, at that time. So I came to Boston. I was um, met, spent the day with um, 
uh, Dr. Fry. We made rounds on several patients. Um, you know, we had a long conversation, and he um, said, okay, tell you what, you come um, a year from now, and you be a special fellow for a year, and at the end of that, we'll make you an assistant professor, and you'll be on the faculty. Well, this was fantastic. I was just so excited. I could have flown back to Washington just by myself, you know, when I didn't mm. need a plane. And then a week, a month goes by. I, I never received any secondary call. I never received a contract or a letter. I called the pediatric hematologist and asked what was happening. And he said, well, it's Dr. Farber and things, there were, there were things going on. Um, and then two things happened. I did get a letter, and sadly, Dr. Farber died. And Dr. Fry was now the director. And so um, my wife and I and our um, um, daughter, um, who was then a few months old, uh, came to book back to Boston in 1974, and I've been here ever since. Wow. So it's interesting. I have a lot of questions, but the first is, it seems like this pediatric hematologist very much took you under his wing as a mentor. But I note that now you don't actually treat pediatric malignancies. So with this fellowship and, I guess, entering Boston, how did you navigate the world of choosing your subspecialization and ending up in, I guess, GI well, malignancies? It, it's a good point, but this pediatric hematologist... Mm was trained as an internist and for a variety of reasons had moved to a pediatric hospital because his research was on hemoglobin and on thalassemia. Um, so he understood that there was a spectrum. Um, and I learned as well that it's really the biology that makes the difference. You, the clinical care may have a... Um, union card where you are uh, a pediatrician or an adult person, but it's really the biology that underlies it that really defines what you do. Um, the second thing was that when I came back to Boston, I was all set to get engaged in leukemia, except there weren't a lot of leukemia patients at that time. And actually, the leukemia patients that were at the NIH were not local. They were being flown in from all around the country. But what had happened was that Dr. Fry, Tom Fry, had just uh, concluded negotiating um, the involvement of our nascent, our new uh, center, into a multidisciplinary, multi-institutional uh, contract arrangement with the NCI in gastrointestinal cancer. And he asked me if I'd be interested in doing that. And that became what was known as the Gastrointestinal Tumor Study Group. So I was just a kid. I had really no experience, and I was with these very well known gastroenterologists and surgeons and 
I learned an enormous amount, and it was such a great opportunity. It also taught me the incredible power of mentoring and the um, fact that the pediatric hematologist, Dr. Fry, um, a man named George Canellis, who came to Dana-Farber from the NCI a year later, uh, these were people who gave me an opportunity, and they taught me that when you have talented young people, you need to give them chances to do things that are first going to make them feel good about themselves and make them feel that they really belong in this uh, subspecialty and that this is a growth career opportunity for them and also to get their name out there. You've got to write that review paper. You've got to give that talk. You've got to meet the people, be part of a clinical study. That's, that's where careers are made. And that was a message that became very important for me in my, in my own work with uh, many years of leading a training program. And we'll move to mentorship a little bit. So you said, you know, you were lucky enough to fall into or have people that really backed you and got you to sort of where you needed to go with the lessons that you've taken from that how have you helped shape i guess the mentorship and the culture at dana farber Hmm. well i finished that first year uh, as a special fellow i think it was called and the next day um i was the attending (laughs) And um, I remember that um, on that first day, uh, we were called to see somebody with small cell lung cancer. And there was a new fellow. I hadn't met him before. He had come to us from Syracuse. He had also been at the NCI doing something different than I did. Um, So we saw this patient. Well, that person, Bob Comus, became the chair of the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group and an internationally known lung cancer doctor. Um, I learned that our program could become a breeding ground, a training center for leaders in uh, academic medical oncology. There was no academic medical oncology actually. This was 1975. The um, American Board of Internal Medicine had not been, had not blessed uh, medical oncology till 1973. That's when they gave the board examination for the first time. I took the second exam. That was in 1975. Uh, but this was all brand new, and. Hospitals didn't know what to do with cancer. They didn't know what to do with chemotherapy. Um, um, Young people were going into, talented young people were going into cardiology and gastroenterology because there were no role models and the science hadn't been clarified. If we think about precision medicine now and immunotherapy and targeted treatments, uh, rather we were just giving high-pressure sprays of uh, uh, alkylating agents and, and, and toxic cytotoxic uh, molecules, hoping that there would be a differential in ability to 
sustain repair between the cancer cell and the tumor and the non non cancer cell it was all really very primitive but there was a sense that the, this was such a scourge in our society and there were so many things that needed to be done and then some small steps occurred the notion that adjuvant chemotherapy works in humans the thought the the fact that you could cure testicular cancer even though it was widely metastatic uh, the thought that you could cure Hodgkin's disease and lymphomas um, nobody was thinking of survivorship clinics at that time nobody was thinking about um, late toxicities it was just can you keep somebody alive make a lump go away uh, but there was a very exciting period of time you ask about mentorship for me so I started doing this um, I was given three or four opportunities that I'm so grateful for uh, first there was nobody else I became the fellowship director and the fellowship grew we created a curriculum um, we extended the fellowship to some of the other Harvard hospitals, and I directed the program till 2011, and some 300 or so different people who trained in the program, and young people stimulate you to think, and young people who succeed make you enormously proud, um, and young people who come from uh, a training place like this put that place on the map because people say wow look what happened to these people so some of our trainees did things like um, uh, become director of the NCI or become cancer center directors we had one Nobel laureate um, so things happened um, I happened to be um, in the right place at the right time for that um, another thing that happened was um, Dr. Fry was a member of the editorial board of the New England Journal of Medicine, which was just down the street. And three years after, um, his term was up. So George Canellis became, took that for three years. And then when his term was up, I was a kid but I found myself on the editorial board of the New England Journal. And I stayed on the masthead for 24 years, um, both initially on the editorial board and then as an, as an associate editor. And the same thing happened with the American Board of Internal Medicine. It was an opportunity. There weren't a lot of people who could have been in that role because this was all a new field. But because of the um, uh, mentorship here that was given to me, I had met a lot of folks. And next thing you know, I was the chair of the medical oncology um, um, writing committee for the board examination, which um, sets a standard and uh, is, is important and also um worked hard to make the internal medicine community see that 
medical oncology belonged just like endocrinology or nephrology, that it was a science, that this was something that deserved respect. Um, again, it was an opportunity that people had given me. And the last one dealt with cooperative groups. Um, there was Tom Fry getting me involved in the gastrointestinal tumor study group. Um, shortly thereafter, um, there was the cancer and leukemia group B, uh, which Tom was the chair of for a while. And um, I had an opportunity to chair a very big leukemia study there and then uh, develop a multidisciplinary GI cancer program. Um, these were all opportunities that just, there, there weren't other people. There, there weren't a lot of people and the mentorship was there. So I really think this, I, I was just very fortunate right from the start with the pediatric hematologist who, uh, by the way, became the president of this institution and whose office was down the hall from me, um, who's now in his 90s. Um, these are just I'm just very fortunate that these things have happened. You've had such an incredibly varied career, and I am aware of the time, but I have a couple of final questions for you. If you could pick one or two of your achievements that you're most proud of over such a, a vibrant life, can be personal, can be professional, what would they be? Training young people, stimulating them to share my enthusiasm for taking care of cancer patients, um, teaching them how to talk to a cancer patient, teaching them how to give them hope, to give them security, to be there when they need to, when they really need you. Um, the second is to test hypotheses and not accept things um, without uh, data. Um, data are a very important uh, um, issue. And when I um, was um, in training, um, it was not always uh, practices that had been adopted long before the NCCN and guidelines uh, often were done uh, on a much more haphazard way. And I think that that's important. The public expects that. The public expects that the way that they're going to be treated and the way that federal funding is distributed uh, will be based on science, will be based on um, intelligent, knowledgeable, uh, committed people uh, collaborating together and coming up with the best plan. We had the opportunity to do that, and I think it's happened in this field. I think the third thing is uh, the growth of ASCO. Um, I had the privilege of serving as president of ASCO uh, 25 years ago. Uh, it's the organization that I feel the strongest about, uh, but it is a single organization that draws people from Australia, from Africa, from uh, Europe, from every, every part of the globe. And um, it has created uh, a uh, way of communicating uh, and learning from each other and bringing people together. So um, again, it's being in the right place at the right time, but um, it, uh, th these are the things that have meant the most to me. And one final question that I ask everyone that sort of sits in your seat. If you had some advice for your younger self, 
So, you know, go back 30 years, 40 years, maybe even more, either personally or professionally, what would that be? Having an open mind, um, um, appreciating the um, value of uh, collaboration, um, maybe writing up data that I never published, um, maybe writing a second edition of a book or, or things that I, I, I never really uh, did. I am um, um, grateful when I see the generation of people I trained and the generation after that. Um, as you know, I have uh, a daughter who uh, um, watched me as a child and uh, when she was a child and chose to enter oncology and I consider that an endorsement um, and I'm very proud of her and her colleagues and what they do um, and I'm just amazed at the science that is coming out these days. I suppose maybe if I had one thing to do it would be to take a sabbatical and maybe learn, learn a little bit more uh, science than uh, just the clinical trial methodology which is what I learned when I was in training. We could even go down that classical music route that you thought about so many years ago. Uh, I've tried to do that too, <laughs> as a matter of fact, and Symphony Hall is not very far from my office. So. Fair enough. Well, Bob, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show and for you giving us your incredible insights over such a varied and esteemed career. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. If you like this episode, there's plenty more where that came from. Check out our website, inquisitiveonc.com, that's inquisitiveonc.com, for links to all of our previous episodes. You'll find links to our social media there as well. If you'd like a particular subject covered on the show, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at inquisitiveonc or via email at inquisitiveonc at gmail.com. This has been Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind, a podcast by ADC Productions.